You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain. And make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. And you young kids, follow us on Instagram. Put a filter on us at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to all of our episodes old and new on the Broadway Podcast Network, iTunes, and Spotify. From his Broadway debut as the title role in 1972's Pippin, all the way up to the most recent Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, today's guest has one of the most versatile theatrical resumes. Not only is he an accomplished actor, he's a director, a composer, an educator, a narrator of audiobooks, and one of the major players in having Los Angeles recognized as a place for not just film work, but theater work as well. A few of his onstage appearances include Children of a Lesser God, Fools, for which he also wrote the incidental music, The Kane Mutiny Court Martial, Hurley Burley, and Butterfly Love Letters, Getting Away with Murder, Ragtime, and countless appearances on TV and film in The Boys from Brazil, Dragnet, Ironside, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, Crazy Like a Fox, Friends, Feud, and so many more. And to tell us what it was like to work with such legends as Bob Fosse, Howard Keel, Irene Ryan, Mike Nichols, Stephen Sondheim, Al Prince, and so many more, here is Arthur Rubenstein's son, John Rubenstein. John, how are you today? I'm great, thanks. How are you? Good. It's so nice to have you. You're, you're calling in from Los Angeles, I believe? Yes. Dear old L.A. How's What's it like out there right now? Well, I'm looking out the window, and a, a rare sight, clouds. Huh? Oh. It's a cloudy day in Los Angeles. I, I don't often get to say that. Okay. And it's actually, it's kind of sunny here in New York, so... We, we're, our coasts are trading a little bit. Our coasts are trading a little bit. Okay, so, John, we're going to start right at the beginning. and we, we have to ask, being the son of Arthur Rubenstein, the, the greatest pianist of the 20th century, what, what was this like? How, did he encourage your love of music? I'm sure he did. Tell us a little bit about your dad. Wow. Well, I would have to say he sort of created my love of music more than, than encouraged it. Because, uh, yeah, he w- he played the piano all the time, and he really played well. And that was the sound of my entire childhood at home, was basically him in the other room 
playing and playing beautifully and playing pieces and working on them, you know, not just playing them as in a performance, but, you know, practicing. So the difficult parts he would play over and over and over and over. But even when he was practicing and, and, and just working like we would, you know, lift weights or something, uh, he played with his amazing phrasing and and understanding of the music it was always music to him it was never just exercise or etude you know so that's what i grew up with in in my ears uh, and yeah sure that made me a, a, a sort of a, a music oriented person before i even knew what i was talking about you know, I didn't know what path I was going to follow. I, I fell into path following when I was around uh, 12 or 13. Um, when I was seven, I was born here in Los Angeles, um, where my parents lived uh, during the end of, the, of, of World War II. Uh, they emigrated out here to L.A. as did many, many, many European artists. They were living in Paris. Uh, in 1939, as as the Nazis approached, they uh, they left. They got out of there. Having a very Jewish last name didn't really help people in those days. And uh, they settled in New York for about a year with my older brother and sister. But then they they very quickly moved out here, and that's when I was born out here. And my sister, uh, my my sister was more my age. And am I correct in saying that you traveled a lot as as a young man? You lived in many different places. Is that correct? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, my father traveled the world all the time. So uh, after the war, Europe was sort of, you know, in disarray and many big cities bombed out and there wasn't there wasn't a concert, uh, uh, you know, program going on. Until the early 50s. Um, so, so when I was seven, which was in the early 50s, uh, we moved back to New York. He did. We all did. Because Europe opened back up. My dad started his yearly concert tour, which was from like uh, February, March, March-ish, until November-ish, was in Europe. And sometimes east of there in Asia and, you know, in the Orient and in, in Africa. And um, then November till February or March was uh, the United States, mostly also Mexico, also Canada. And that's, and, and he did that uh, for the rest of his life, actually. Mm. So I went on a lot of that, those tours with him when I wasn't in school and I also <laughs> skipped and missed a lot of school <laughs> to get to do some of that too. Of course, yeah. but what? A, <laughs> but what an education! Yeah, yeah. It was it was fantastic. First, you know, uh, being in New York uh, in those days that was a glorious. It was sort of a glorious time in America, really, yeah. even though it was post-war, and you know that there, there was the aftermath just of that. But there was this kind of. Um, feeling that that uh, that we don't feel anymore i mean we do we do as a country uh uh look forward to the future and we we hope we have great hope for our future 
and we work hard to to fight the <laughs> to fight the dark forces oh. in our country. But in those days, the dark forces had been sort of abroad mm. and had been defeated. And New York had, had the golden age of theater, arguable when that was, when it started, when it ended, if it ended, you know, or even if it was, some people <laughs> would probably disagree. But still, the 50s and 60s in New York, which were my days there as a, as a young boy and then as a young man uh, were, were the golden age of theater and all those great plays and musicals. And most of all, it was affordable. Mm-hmm. So that I, as a kid, on my allowance, could go and see Broadway shows and sit in good seats. And if I loved or liked to play, I could see it twice or four times. And, you know, it, it didn't break the bank. Nowadays, a young kid like me, growing up in New York City, loving the theater, I don't know what, what he does or she. I don't know what they do. The, how do they go to those Broadway shows? Because the cheapest seats are now seventy, eighty, ninety, a hundred dollars right. for the shows no one wants to see, let alone the heads. I mean, I mean uh, I, I, anyway, so that was my that was my education. Uh, that that's uh, that was my start. And what it was sounds- the first Broadway show you ever saw? Sorry, Bob. First, first Broadway, Broadway show I ever saw was Wonderful Town with Rosalind oh. Russell, oh, wow. and Edie Adams, and George Gaines. Oh yeah. Oh, I that. worked with George Gaines years after that, and uh, I, I always spoke to him about it. That's wonderful. Yeah, oh, that's that is incredible. Right, Joe. I remember it as though I had seen it yesterday. It oh, such an impression on me. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember some of the other shows you were seeing that were having transformative uh, experiences for you at that time? Well, I mean, that was the first. Now, my oldest sister, Eva. E-V-A, not Eva, but Eva, mm-hmm. um, was a dancer. And mm. she, uh, out here in Los Angeles, she was a teenager, and she was taking dance classes, ballet classes. And when she got to New York, she started dancing off-Broadway. She worked with uh, Martha Graham. She worked with Agnes DeMille. Um, and so... Uh, one of my earliest memories of that was we were in Europe. I can't remember what year it was, but it was early, early mid-50s, probably 55-ish. Um, and we were in Venice, Italy. And my sister was on tour, on a USO tour oh. um, of Oklahoma, <laughs> which was the company in which... Jack Cassidy and Shirley Jones met playing Curly and Laurie. Oh, that's crazy. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, Shirley Jones took over for another lady because we saw them in Paris and then we saw them again in Venice. But, uh, but there was my sister and she was one of the dancing girls. Uh, you know, I remember her. She was one of the, the bad can-can girls in the ballet. Yep. So did you, at a young age, know that you wanted to be on stage? Was, was acting something that fascinated you? Yeah. Well, it fascinated me just as a thing. Right. Uh, I always loved baseball, and I used to throw the little pink rubber ball against my wall, whack, whack, and catch it and catch it and catch it and pretend I was in the World Series. But I, 
I never thought maybe I'll, I'll be a baseball player someday. Never thought that. Right. So similarly, I loved the theater. I sang all those songs. I, you know, lived and breathed it, played the records, of course, um, but didn't really say I'm going to do that mm-hmm. until I went to this particular school in New York, um, a private boys school. Uh, now I couldn't afford to even walk in the door, but in those days it wasn't that big of a deal. Again, you know, it was affordable, but it was a, a wonderful private school and still is called St. Bernard's, uh, founded by British uh, professors, educated all in England, and the faculty were mostly uh, Brits, great old guys and, and ladies too. And the British, m- way more than, than the Americans, take their theater, but also just their public speaking, their recitation of poetry, um, their learning and singing of music much more seriously than we do. We were doing plays. We were doing operettas. Uh, we did a Mozart operetta. I had a nice little soprano voice, and I was the girl. I was Bastienne in Bastien and Bastienne, a little young Mozart operetta. Um, I was made Marion in Robin Hood. We did a, a, a musical of Robin Hood. Uh, and my leading man uh, was both Bastien and Robin uh, in both of those. So we were the two little singer type stars <laughs> and he got the guy's part and 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 so it went that school ended in the eighth grade now the eighth grade every year did a shakespeare play and if there were extra parts needed the, they would delve into the seventh and sixth grades so in the sixth grade when i was whatever i was 11 yeah 11 i was in the tempest <laughs> And was one of the fairies, of course, uh, in the big banquet scenes and the whatever. You know, I don't even remember if I had lines. But I think I may have had, you know, one of those lines like "hee hee," and <laughs> we ran around. But we did the whole play. We didn't do little weird cuttings. These guys were serious. And then in my eighth grade graduating year, uh, the play was uh, the Scottish play. Oh. Maybe on a podcast, oh. not bad yeah, luck. Yeah. <laughs> so it was Macbeth. And when you were in Mr. Strange, because that was his name, Edward Musgrove Strange. What a name. Uh, Mr. Strange's seventh grade homeroom, in which he taught math and geography, as well as English. You, you studied the play that you were going to do next year in eighth grade. So in... My seventh grade year, we learned and studied Macbeth, and we read it through from the beginning to the end, every word, and then we would go back to the beginning and read it again, and he would assign all the boys in the room the parts. The boys, of course, always played the women's roles, as I had, you know, before. Um, And so by the end of, and, and of course, he would teach it to us. So when it was a Greek myth reference or a geographical location that none of us had heard of or a sexual reference, you know, I have mm-hmm. given suck and know what tis to blah, blah, blah. He would explain it to us. There, was, there, there were 
no holds barred. Right. So by the end of seventh grade, we knew that play better probably than most actors who have been <laughs> in it, you know? And at the very, on the last day, he would assign the roles. And I was given the role of Macbeth. And then over the summer, we learned our lines, which we were already very familiar with, yeah. having read the play, you know, however, 25 times during the school year. And then in the fall, we would come back as eighth graders and rehearse every afternoon after school for two hours or three. And that's when he taught us stagecraft. That was when I knew I wanted to be on the stage. And I'm assuming your parents were supportive of you going into this venture? Well, it wasn't a venture yet. It was just the school play, you know? Yes. So, so yeah, they were supportive. They came and they saw me. Two of their dearest friends uh, were Garson Kanan and Ruth Gordon. Oh, okay. Yeah. Garson, who wrote, you know, uh, Born Yesterday and many, many other things and was a great Broadway director. Yeah. Ruth Gordon, of course, you know, icon of the Broadway stage and later of the movies. But Garson and Ruth were my friends, too. They took children seriously. They didn't talk down to us. And when they saw little Johnny playing Macbeth with all of his heart and being heard in the back row and committing to it, uh, they said, hey, you got this. You can do this. And uh, they were my my mentors. Uh, from then on. What are some lessons that they taught you that you still take with you to this day? Again, the lessons were similar to my mu my music lessons, in quotes, from my dad, uh, which he didn't give me, but hearing him play. Yeah, yep. Hearing him play at home, mm -hmm. hearing him play for me, when I would run up to him and say, hey, play me the, whatchamacallit, the, the second ballad, and he would, oh, okay. He would sit down and play it for me. <laughs> and, he, and he would occasionally stop and say, you see, as you notice how the left hand here plays the same accompaniment, it's the same melody, but he plays it in a different configuration so that the B flat isn't on the bottom, it's in the middle and the D flat is on the bottom. And that changes how the whole harmony and tonality make the melody stand out. And he would tell me those kind of things. Mm. Not really giving me a lesson of what I should do, but just teaching me about yeah. music. Mm -hmm. So Garson would invite me to all of his rehearsals. Oh. Directing a play. He directed, um, and I didn't see this because I was young and they didn't want me to see it, which is, I resent it to this day. <laughs> but my sister, Eva, who had danced, and she danced in a Broadway show called The Girl in Pink Tights. Oh. With Jean Mer, the great French ballet star uh, of, the, of the something, I think the Ballet de Paris, was that what it was called? Again, memory. Uh -huh. But... Uh, <laughs> Zizi Jean-Mer, great star, yeah. little gamine yeah. with little short black hair. She's sort of the epitome of the French gamine, uh, copied later by, you know, Edith Piaf and that kind. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so my sister, again, was in the dancing chorus of that with little tiny 
um, boys, little teeny weeny boys. I think they were like six or eight or something. Maurice and and uh, um, okay, here's memory. Heinz. Maurice Henry Heinz. Heinz. Gregory, Gregory, yeah, Gregory yeah. and Maurice Hines were in that show with her as little teeny boys oh, dancing. I didn't realize that. Wow! Yeah. Wow, um, that's wild. Anyway, so I had seen her do that, and then Garson, who you know, she was also his friend and a, a much older young woman, cast her in the original production on Broadway of. Um, diary of the diary of Anne Frank, and oh. she created the role of Margot, the sister of oh. Anne Frank. Susan Strasberg, Lee Strasberg's daughter, played uh, Anne. Joseph Schildkraut played the father. Uh, wonderful. Um, oh dear, here we go. Was Ooh. Lou Jacoby was in it? No, Lou yes. Jacoby was in it. Uh, um, who who was in Cabaret later playing? Herr Schultz. Uh, Jack Guilford. Guilford was in. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. So all of those people were in that show, which they didn't allow me to see because I was seven or eight and it was about Nazis and people being killed because they were Jewish. Um, and so they thought I would be upset by it, which I wouldn't have been. First of all, I'm not Jewish. My father was Jewish and my mother was as Catholic as the Pope. And there was no religion in our house of any kind. But, you know, with a name like Rubenstein, you're a, you're a Jew and people wish you a happy new year in September. And you say, what? Oh, oh yes. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so, so much. And, and people talk to me in Hebrew all the time with a little wink, you know. Well, John. And I go, oh, oh, you gotcha. But uh, I'm I, say with a little bit of humor and, and a little bit of shame, no, no religion at all. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, that play was very strong and, uh, and she was in it for its whole run. Oh. oh my gosh. I don't, that was an answer to something. Oh, what did Garson teach me? So after that, Garson would have me into all of his rehearsals. So I saw him direct young Robert Redford and uh, Pat Stanley. Yeah, yeah. In, in Sunday in New York, uh, I was at all those rehearsals. Oh wow! Yeah. Um, so he didn't sit there and teach me anything and say, "Here, John, here's what you do." But I sat next to him Just and watched him. Redford as a uh, he was in his early twenties. He had to be um, put together a Broadway play comedy and talk about comedy and timing mm-hmm. and wait a minute, come in a moment later. And when you do uh, knock over the thing there, that'll get a laugh. And, you know, so I, I watched them put together a, a play and deal with the writer who was sitting there also. And well, what should we, uh, now this is, that's going on too long. Cut those three lines and let's go right to the part where she comes in and does the, and so I was just sitting there watching all that. Uh, I watched him direct, Funny Girl with Barbara Streisand, with Marvin Hamlish playing a rehearsal piano. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, Lainey Kazan was the understudy. And I would, I don't know why she took a, she took a, you know, a, 
a fondness towards me, little boy. I was, again, whatever I was, 12, you know, and she would sit next to me because she was watching Barbara. So because she was the understudy, she had to watch all of her scenes and get it. And uh, and so I became buddies with Lainey Kazan and uh, and watched Barbara Streisand learn the role of Fanny Bryce and sing all the songs. So what then makes you choose UCLA as where as where you want to pursue your studies? So as I then went to high school after eighth grade, I went to a, another private school in New York City, a boys' school. All my classmates at St. Bernard's went to the country, went to prep schools in, in Connecticut and Rhode Island and, and Massachusetts. Um, but I couldn't imagine leaving the city because I was a theater maniac at that point. Went to every Broadway show. I saw everything. And I went to a high school and it was an American school, collegiate actually, the oldest independent boys' school in America. It was founded in the 1600s by the Dutch before Manhattan was part of the United States or something. Um, and it was, it, they also had a great drama program there. And I did a lot of plays. Again, Shakespeare did Henry V and played Henry. I started writing music there. I wrote satirical reviews. I would go to uh, Julius Monk was a great writer of satirical reviews in Manhattan. And he had a regular gig underneath uh, the in the basement of the Plaza Hotel called Plaza Nine. Uh, he had been upstairs at the downstairs, but he moved uptown to the plaza. And I would go there and do my homework sometimes at night with my friend Sasha. And uh, we would we'd have to get dressed, so we'd always be in our tie and our suit, you know, which we had to wear in school anyway. Um, and we would bring our homework because we had to be at school early in the morning. And we'd watch Julius Monk, uh, you know, all those great, Susan Browning, who later was in company. She was one of yeah. those people. Uh, Jack Fletcher, uh, Mary Louise Wilson, oh, whom yeah. I later uh, worked with on Broadway. So anyway, uh, I knew that I had to go to work. I had to be an actor. So when all my fellow students in 11th and 12th grades were agonizing over college. Um, I didn't. Mm. I didn't take the exams. I didn't apply. I didn't go on the college tours. I didn't meet with the college reps who came to the high school to sell Yale and Princeton and Harvard to us. Um, I just said, no, I'm going to work. And um, my parents didn't like that. <laughs> yeah. Not because they didn't want me to be an actor necessarily. My father thought I should, and that's a, a, a chosen phrase, he thought I should be a symphony conductor. He knew I was a good musician. He knew I would never be a pianist mm. because I would never be a pianist. But he knew that I was musical enough to conduct and that I loved and knew and understood music enough that he wanted me to go to proper Juilliard type, you know, conservatory and become a conductor. But it wasn't like he wanted me to be one. It's just he thought I should because I was, in his view, qualified and why not? 
And I didn't fight him on it. I just said, well, I, I, I want to be an actor. And so we didn't, you know, it wasn't a big uh, uh, fraught discussion, but it, I didn't want to go to college because I said, why do I have to sit for four years and write essays and learn about weather and, you know, history? And why should I do that when all I want to do is act? And mm -hmm. I've done that now. I've been to these really sort of excellent schools. I've gotten great grades. I've written my thesis, you know, on, on American history. I know my Moby Dick. <laughs> why must I do it all over again? We went to England that summer. My dad was playing in London and uh, around England, as he always did. And we went to see their friend, uh, Laurence Olivier, in the cherry orchard, mm -hmm. which he was doing at Chichester, the Chichester Theatre Festival just outside of London. Uh, he played, uh, Olivier played the doctor, and uh, um, Michael Redgrave played... Vanya. It was Uncle Vanya. It wasn't the cherry orchard. Yeah, I knew I was stumbling. Anyway, so it was a great production of that play. That was my first time seeing Uncle Vanya. Not bad way to see it. Oh, my God. And we went to dinner afterwards with Olivier and Joan. And um, at one point, my refusal to... This was between, I think, my 11th and 12th grade year. So I was going to go back to New York as a senior in high school and was already not participating in the college mania. And so they presented the case to Olivia and said, well, our son, Johnny, wants to be an actor. And uh, he doesn't want to go to college. He wants to get out of high school and immediately uh, start trying to get acting work. What, tell him, you know. <laughs> and Olivia said, he leaned across the table. I was sitting across from him. He leaned over and said, hit the streets, boy. <laughs> it was my moment of great victory. So I pursued that. So you did. But near the middle of my, of my senior year, when all my friends were already getting their early acceptance from all the amazing Ivy League colleges. My little high school still does prided itself on, we got four boys into Yale, we got three boys into Princeton, seven went to Harvard, got a couple into Brown, we have a few in blah, 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 blah you know. So John Rubenstein, blank, <laughs> didn't look so good on their record. They didn't like that. What happened to that guy, you know? Right. So... They conspired with my parents uh, and they forced me to go to college. They said, you have to. And I said, oh, gosh, well, I haven't done any of the stuff. I haven't taken any of the meetings. I haven't done any of the exams. I haven't done anything. So they made me take some AP courses. And I said, OK, I'll go to college. But... I will only go to a college where, as a freshman, I can immediately major in theater and be doing theater and being in plays, not as extracurricular, whatever, la-di-da, if I have time for it, but as my course of study. And at that point, there was Carnegie Tech 
which is now called Carnegie Mellon, I believe, mm-hmm. in Pittsburgh. There was Northwestern in Chicago, which still does. And there was UCLA. At that point, those were the three places that really, there were probably others, but those were three of the sort of best ones mm-hmm. where you could, as a young freshman, start out as a theater major. And that could be your four-year course of study. So I applied. I didn't apply. I went. I flew to Pittsburgh. That was my first stop. And I made an appointment with the admissions people at Carnegie Tech. Went there, saw some rehearsals. They showed me around. I saw some acting classes. It all looked really nice. But um, I don't know. I just, I felt out of sorts there, you know, in Pittsburgh. It was a judgment on the city, which I later came to love a lot, working there many different times on tour and, and, uh, you know. But at that point, snobby little Manhattan, you know, uh, privileged kid that I was, Pittsburgh didn't appeal to me. Mm. Um, For no reason, mind you. Just the drive from the airport. Just, yes, so, sorry, Pittsburgh. Don't call me judgmental, please. <laughs> um, and there was a vibe in that school that, I don't know, if, if vibes can be included in anybody's college uh, considerations, that was one. I, I, I didn't appeal to me. Chicago, I'd been to many, many times with my dad because he played there, obviously, every year. And... Some of his American tour, even though we were in school, we would fly out and join him. And Chicago is one of those cities. Um, And it was so cold there. And I was a skinny little boy and I hated being cold. Um, And I didn't want to move to Chicago and go through those winters. Again, you know, very intelligent, rational reason uh, to pick your college. UCLA, however, was my hometown, uh, and it's except for today is always sunny here. <laughs> and UCLA had a great theater program, so that's what I did. That's why I came to UCLA. Hello there. This is Eva Gabor and Eddie Albert. Yes, before we were on Green Acres, we were both Broadway babies, and we love listening to Behind the Curtain, Broadway's living legends. And don't forget to tell them to put pasties on, and a pastry... Uh, no, don't put pasties. Go to patreon.com and set a donation. Yes, patreon.com. Oh, do it for me, not for Jaja. Welcome to the theater, darling. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What brought you back to New York and, and when did you decide to start auditioning for Broadway shows or, or for shows in general in the New York area? Well, um, I started auditioning for shows out here mm. at the end of my freshman year. Um, I went out to... Oh. Melody Land in Anaheim. Yes. Okay. Which uh, I think is a church now. If I'm yes. And there was a, a theater in the round, and there were many of them then. This is mid '60s, 1965. And uh, those theaters in the round were very popular out here. I don't know if they were as popular in the East, um, but there weren't stage theaters out here as as they are all over the east coast and even in the midwest as many of them there are some so those theaters were this big summer stock theater so i went out and auditioned and um i sang a song that a friend of mine had written uh for me uh at ucla and um they said you will be if you want to in camelot which we're doing with Howard yeah. Keel and Linda Bennett and Ron Huseman, whom I had oh, seen. Ron Huseman. Yeah, I had seen Ron in New York in uh, Tenderloin. So that was my first professional job. And we did it up in San Carlos, which is a suburb of San Francisco near the airport. And uh, then in uh, Anaheim at Melody Land. So I was a professional actor. I got my equity card. Uh, I did that. And... Uh, then the next year, I was a musical director at a at the Golden Garter Theater in Cody, Wyoming, uh -huh. visiting Yellowstone. I wore garters on my sleeve. I played the piano. We did two musicals. One was a Gilbert and Sullivan we didn't have to pay for. And the other one was called So Long, Dearie. Can you imagine what show that actually was? But we didn't call it by its real name so that we wouldn't have to pay the world. So we did so long, dear. Classic. Oh, my God. And, and then we also sang for the tourists who came through, and we would slide a garter up the leg of an old lady every day, and she would laugh and giggle. And, you know, it was that yeah. was what I did that summer. But when I came back, I did Camelot, because Howard Keel liked playing that last big scene of Camelot, which on Broadway and in most companies until then, was always a little boy, an eight-year-old, a nine-year-old. It got a big, oh, from the audience as the little boy comes on and he wants to fight. I want to fight. No, my boy, tell them the glory of that was Camelot. And once there was a fleeting wisp of glory. You know, Richard Burton and Kennedy, it's all associated. Um, he liked, Howard liked playing it with a 18-year-old. Mm. I was very skinny, and I looked maybe 15, but I wasn't nine. And so he was talking to a young man who wanted to fight, and he said, no, 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 live, don't die in the battle, go back, and but tell the story mm -hmm. of what we tried to do here. 
and so he would hire me back wherever he was hired to play King Arthur. He would hire me to play Tom of Warwick. So I did it with him out here in uh, uh, Covina, West Covina, at another theater in the round. Uh, we went to uh, Salt Lake City, and we did it mm-hmm. at uh, the theater in the round there. This assistant stage manager there was Michael Price, who would go on to found the Good Speed yeah, yeah. Theater. Uh, he was the second stage manager there. I did, uh, I did uh, um, South Pacific there also. Uh, afterwards, after they they hired me on from up there uh, with Gretchen Weiler. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh. So anyway, because I was already working and still going to college, I would still come back and do plays and musicals at school. We were all of course, tuned in to Broadway. We listened to the records of the shows opening up that we hadn't seen. We would go to New York. My parents still lived there for a couple of years before they moved back to Paris permanently and didn't come back to New York. Except my dad would come every year to play, but they didn't have an apartment there anymore uh, after a while. But I would still go to New York, go to New York. My sisters and brother all lived there, so I would stay with them and see 27 Broadway shows in a week. Oh, totally. (laughs) And so I was up on everything. I saw Cabaret, uh, the original production, and was blown away by it. We did... Brecht and Vile plays at UCLA. We'd done, we'd done Three Penny, and I had done a production of Manus Man, and we did a Brecht play called Baal. So Cabaret was so in that world, in that style. And there was a lot of Lenya standing on the stage in real life, yeah. singing, you know, holy moly. And, and old Jack Guilford there again, you know. So when I came back, I said, I've got, to, I've got to be in that play. And I had a dear, dear friend who had graduated years before me. He was older than me, and his name was Barry Moss. Barry went to UCLA, and he then got jobs. He worked for the Academy of Motion Pictures uh, and would sneak me and our friends into Academy screenings when we had no right to be there. He was a one, he worked the Oscars every year. He, he was in the wings dealing with all the actors and stuff when Barbara Streisand had just given an Oscar presented to somebody and was in the wings standing next to him when her uh, nomination came up, where she was nominated for Best Actress, I believe, for Funny Girl. Mm-hmm. And it was announced on stage that, oh, it's a tie. It's Katherine Hepburn and Barbara Streisand. And she was standing right next to my friend Barry. And uh, I, you, will you bleep me if I use a bad word? Sure. Right ahead. Yeah, as it was announced. And the winners are Catherine Hepburn and Barbara Streisand. And Barbara said, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) That was her first reaction because it was a tie. Can't, not surprised. (laughs) Yeah. But anyway, so Barry, who knew me well, he'd seen everything I'd ever done. He traveled to see me do my Camelots and came to Salt Lake City. I mean, he was my buddy. Mm -hmm. He 
called up Harold Prince's right-hand woman. Again, these were in the days where people answered phones, you know? Is so-and-so in? Uh, yes, I'll pass you right to him. You could do that in those days. And said, my friend John is a brilliant uh, young musical actor. And would because he had read that uh, Joel Grey was leaving. This was after Cabaret had been on for a year or whatever it was that his contract was. He was leaving and John should take over for him. She thought that her secretary had said, Barry Morse is calling. Now, Barry Morse was a well-known, not big star, but a well-known actor. He had done many Broadway plays. He'd done movies and TV, Barry Morse with an R. And she thought it was Barry Morse talking to her. <laughs> so she treated him with great respect. <laughs> <laughs> and arranged an appointment for me to audition for Harold Prince to take over for Joel Gray. So I went to New York. I learned Willkommen, which they told me to do. No scene, no lines, because I don't think he even had any lines. He just had numbers. And uh, I went into her office and she interviewed me. And she said, well, you know, your appointment is tomorrow and it's at the, at the Imperial and, you know, you'll go on stage at four and sing for Mr. Prince and Mr. Kander and Mr. Ebb. And, and it was only later that we realized that she said, well, why was Barry Morse talking about? Oh, I think she might've even said it to me, but I didn't get it, you know, so it never came up. I went to the Imperial. I sang Willkommen. I, they gave me free tickets to see the show that evening. I think it was the day after, so I saw it twice. Oh, maybe there was a matinee. Anyway, I saw it twice then, having seen it already about a year earlier. And so I really picked up all the stuff, you know, all the movements and the mannerisms, and I really did a pretty good Joel Gray, I have to say. <laughs> and I got called back. And the instructions were, put on the makeup. I said, okay. I knew what the makeup was. I'd seen it. I went to a makeup place. I got the, put on white face. I put the little weird lipstick on, on half my mouth, made a little, you know, Joel Gray thing. I can't remember yet a, a birth, something. I did all his makeup and I came back and I did the number again. What I didn't do and this, and I, you know, I didn't rent myself a little tux, a little white tie and tails, which he wore, which had I done so, would have hidden my body. Instead, I went looking like me, and I was a skinny 19-year-old, you know, again, looking 16, and long, skinny neck and slopey shoulders, and I looked like a young boy, young, very young man. Flew back to Los Angeles because I was still in school. And I got a letter from Harold Prince saying, you were the best person who auditioned for me. But there's no way I can give you this part because you're just too young. You look too young. And um, this guy has been around the block and he can't be a, a teenager. He just can't be that young. But... Uh, Congratulations, you have a big future in the theater. That is so kind. 
Oh, are you kidding me? He was one of the kindest, most outgoing, understanding, sweet-hearted people I've ever worked with. And you, you finally got to work with him on Spider-Woman, right? Yeah. Yes. And w- actually being directed by him and going through a rehearsal process with him, what was that like? I don't know. It was like it was like going home to dad, you know, to, to your father. <laughs> sure. And and having a good time and oh, and also getting to sing some songs and do some acting. He 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 just made it fun. He 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 was brilliant, you know. He wasn't like full of himself and here's I he was just, oh hey, let's do that again this time, you know, do that part faster and give it a little more of this. He was just a he knew what the piece required. Mm. He was great to work with, and he was great with writers, mm. obviously. So, okay, and then another big director that you worked with and what really gave you your, your start on Broadway is the great Bob Fosse. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved with Pippin and, and what those rehearsal processes were like? Man, how long is this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> we might have to do a part two. We might have to do a part two. Oh, these are long stories. This particular story I have told before. So if you have, you know, very, very enthusiastic theater people listening, they've heard me say, tell this. Uh, so I can give you a very short version. Sure. Give, give us the condensed version. All right. Sure. I had done a movie called Zachariah. I played Zachariah in it. It was one of two movies produced by ABC Pictures. The other one was cabaret and my picture was done first and it ended up being a big flop but before i knew that it was going to be a flop i was sort of a golden boy of abc pictures i was the star of zachariah which was a a western me and don johnson and you know joe walsh and country joe and the fish and it was crazy i went to the head of abc pictures at a party and said you're producing the film of Cabaret. He said, yeah. I said, I want to take over. For, I, I want to play the MC." He said, we've got Joel Gray. I said, okay. That was the end of that. Um, about three months later, maybe less, he called me up. He said, hey, John, can you do an English accent? I said, yup. I can do it. I went to a British school. I can do it as though it were my hometown. He said, because Michael York, who is supposed to play opposite Liza, Liza, whom I grew up with, she was my babyhood friend out here in Hollywood, because <laughs> Judy Garland was a friend of my parents. Yeah. So she and I were, she and I and Candy Bergen were all uh, sort of three musketeers mm-hmm. when we were three, four, five, six, mm-hmm. those years. Opposite Liza is Michael York, but he has scheduling problems. He won't be able to do the picture, it looks like. And Bob Fosse, who's directing it, needs a replacement. So he set me up with a screen test. You know, no videos in those days. Screen test on the soundstage with Bob. Um, I think I, I went to Bob's office first and met him. And we talked and, you know. He was very, very, very nice, and we got along. So he said, okay. And uh, I had big, long hair. I tied it up in a bun. Not bun, but it made it invisible with hairpins and stuff. 
I just never turn, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and I did two scenes with uh, with Bob's uh, 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 girlfriend from Germany, whom he met, um, uh, playing the the you know Sally Bowles. And I did two scenes with my British accent um, as as that character. And I think Bob was going to cast me, but uh, Michael York fixed his schedule, and that was the end of that. Now, about a year later, I get a phone call at home. I'm here at home in Beverly Glen, where I lived with my first wife, and she was eight months pregnant. And um, the phone rings. John, it's Bob Fawcett. I said, yeah. He said, can you sing? I said, well, um, I've sung a lot, you know. Uh, and so, yeah, I can certainly sing. And I can sing loud and I can carry a tune. And I can act and sing. But I would never, ever, 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 ever call myself a singer. So, yes and no. He said, can I come over? I said, sure. He had worked with my then wife, Judy West. She had danced when he played Joey and pal Joey at city center. So they knew each other. He came over, she made dinner. I played him on the piano, two Laura Nero songs and sang them. Um, we sat down on the couch. He brought this script with him, Pippin. He read all the parts. I read Pippin through the whole play. We read it, had dinner and he left. We went to bed and it was about 1130 PM and uh, our bedroom was the first door you came to because the living room and all that was upstairs. It was a hill house. Knock on the door at 1130. We were just turning out the light. I open it. You open the doors in those days. <laughs> um, it was Fosse. And he handed me a cassette tape and he said, learn the second song and be in New York in three days. Second song was Corner of the Sky. The tape was Stephen Schwartz playing and singing the whole score of Pippin. I flew to New York, went to the theater, auditioned. Uh, I sang my two Laura Nero songs in the orchestra pit, looking up at Stephen and Bob and Stuart Ostro and, and uh, uh, Roger Hurston, the writer, leaning over looking down into the pit as I sang up to them while I played the piano, because I had no sheet music for Laura right. Nero songs. And um, then I got up on the stage and sang Corner of the Sky, and they had their accompanist. And then I stood there for a couple of minutes. There was a line around the block of young men, because there had been an, uh, an ad in the New York Times a couple of days earlier saying, anybody between the ages of 18 and 30 who wants to play the title role in the new Bob Fosse musical, come to the theater at this time. So they were there outside waiting. Young kids with eight by tens, old hippies with very long hair and beads and guitars. Everybody was there. But I had an appointment. There were a few of us, you know, who had appointments, proper audition appointments. And, um, I stood there for a couple of minutes and then Fosse ran down the aisle. He'd been talking with the other three and he said, he looked up at me and said, the part's yours if you want it. Imagine. I said, okay, I want it. <laughs> he said, all right, go to a gym and try to work out. And that was it. And well, that's an incredible story. Now the rehearsal process of the show, what, what was that like? What was it like creating the character? What was it like being directed by Mr. Fosse? 
It was great. It was, it was, you know, it was my first Broadway show. I had dreamed of maybe someday having some bit part in some show on Broadway and walk on a Broadway stage. But here I was in the center of the action um, and having to sing these ridiculous songs that I couldn't sing. And it was, I was, I was slightly, uh, I was nervous about it. You know, I just, mm -hmm. I had no confidence. I had full confidence in being an actor and being on stage. That I'd gotten from Mr. Strange back at St. Bernard's. But my singing, that, that wasn't that wasn't my ace in the hole. So, you know, I felt sort of uh, uh, under under par. But Bob never um, never made me feel that way. It was all from myself, and he just treated me as a fellow professional. He didn't treat me as a young novice being given his first break. None of that condescension. None of that kind of you know, hey bud, we're doing you. A big one here. No, I was, you know, absolutely taken seriously. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and Ben Vereen was basically my age. Uh, and, you know, he, he and Bob had a relationship already because he'd been in the movie of uh, Sweet Charity and they knew each other. And, and, you know, Ben was Ben. So that was what that was. Um, but he was so smart. And he was so tuned in to the audience. He didn't have a sort of a, uh, a big uh, um, ego. He had a huge ego, but he didn't have an egotistical way of directing where I know all these secret magic things about the theater and about this play. And I hope you, you underlings will figure them out and with my guidance be able to reproduce them no he was we gotta we gotta get a laugh here so wait a minute why don't you oh i know do this with your arm and you know he would just have ideas showbiz ideas and knowledge and experience here's what will work here here's what doesn't work in the script and he would yell we gotta cut that out that's not funny that's stupid and you know, he he wasn't abrasive he didn't use the word stupid really but he was he was in it and on it as though he were a member of the audience and always thinking of what they needed to get them into the show whether it was a moving moment or a musical moment, certainly a dance moment or just a theatrical moment, what they would need to get them onto the next step. And it was great working with somebody like that because I felt totally in sync with him, even though I was years younger and obviously it was, I was a, you know, a rookie. Do you think, John, directors have changed from people like Garson Kanan and Bob Fosse to directors maybe that you've worked with, you know, currently in the past few years? Huh. Or the style of directing? I don't, I, I don't think I can give you a straight answer. I can't say, yes, they certainly have, because I, I don't have instances of it. But what somebody like Bob had was... Those years, by the time I ran into him, of experience, of having been 
in vaudeville, having been on Broadway stages, having been in Hollywood movies, having then choreographed show after show after show, and then directed show after show after show. He just knew what the hell he was doing. Mm. And you don't get, you get younger directors nowadays who are very smart, and they've been to the Yale Drama School and graduated from it, and know a great deal, and are brilliant in many, many ways, but they, for the most part, don't have those kind of experiences. Mike Nichols, similar, you know, yeah. coming up through comedy and through, you know, all of the stuff that he had done. So I loved him and he was so much fun to be around and rehearsals were fun and we laughed and those dancers, they would have walked the plank for him. They loved him, men and women. The women loved him because he was sexy. His sexiness was that lightness, the sweetness, and the intelligence behind it. Pippin's going to be around for, for years and years and years after we've all left this earth. So what tips or advice do you have for actors that will take on the role of Pippin at some point? Well, um, it's a very difficult role. Uh, there are others, many others, similar to it. Candide in Candide. Mm. Bobby in company. There are others where you're the you're the lead, you're the star of the show, you're the central focus, and yet <laughs> all the other people are having the fun and tearing it up, getting the laughs, getting the big show-stopping applause for the big numbers that they do, and you sort of stand there and watch them do it. Now, that's obviously an exaggeration. Pippin sure works his butt off and has a lot to do. Bobby has tremendous, beautiful songs to sing in company, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But still, Dean Jones left that show not for no reason. Mm -hmm. And part of it was, I'm busting my butt out here. But uh, Elaine Stritch <laughs> is, is the focus as is Barbara Barry, as is George Coe, as is, go down the list, <laughs> Susan Browning. That was a little bit of my feeling, again, not from an ego point of view, but from a dramatic point of view. I felt the audience wasn't with me in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. when we opened. And so I would tell young kids, I learned a great deal doing Pippin. And I would, I would argue with Bob. I'd say, Bob, you got me sitting here watching numbers. I watched Ben do three numbers. I watched Irene Ryan kill the show. I watched Jill Clayburgh have two big songs while I sit there watching her. I'm watching and watching and watching. Uh, I'm, I'm pipping. The audience is, is going to, and I feel it on the stage. They wish I would shut up and bring somebody else back on stage to do another big number. They don't want to hear me in my little, you know, thin voice singing. That's not what they want. And he'd say, John, no, 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 you've got it wrong. But I was right. And he was wrong. But he wasn't wrong about the whole experience. He was, he had directed me and I had taken his direction too much to heart to be too earnest, to be too 
Bob Fossey is. Even as I talk to you now, you can't see me, although I'm on Zoom. I'm, I, I've taken a Bob Fossey posture with my shoulders forward and my hands clasped in front of my chest because that's how Bob would talk. And especially if he was talking about Pippin, he would take that little sort of crumpled posture and say, yeah, Pippin this and Pippin that. And I'd say, okay, yeah, yeah, Bob, yeah, I get it. And I would do that too. And that's how I played Pippin for a long time. And it, it, it sort of was watery. It sort of disappeared. And I slowly came into my own and found my own body and my own sense of humor and my own self. I didn't change any lines or, or change the blocking or do anything other than what I'd been directed to do. But I learned how to be myself in a character that was written and directed by other people, which until then I had been a vessel and I unvesseled myself and took over that boy, Pippin, and it became me. And Bob would come back and check the show. And he would always come to my room and say, John, it's getting so much better. Oh, my God. That moment and this song and that. You got that whole thing going now that you didn't used to do. That's so wonderful. And he was always supportive because he knew that I needed that growth. And he knew that ultimately I would be a good Pippin for his vision, which was not a big, hunky, you know, leading man, matinee idol, not a big singer who was going to make you swoon with his fantastic voice, but a sort of nerdy, not quite baked young guy who can't really do anything right and is surrounded by amazing magic people and amazing performers and singers and dancers. And little Pippin is sort of <laughs> an aspirant, but not much more. That was his brilliance to cast me because there were a million Broadway actors of my basic age and type who could sing me under the table, who could dance, who could do all kinds of stuff that I didn't know how to do. But I learned it on stage over those years, over those weeks and months, I would have to say. And I would have people come to me backstage after the show, after a year, you know, and say, gosh, John, we heard that Ben Vereen was the only reason to come see this show. But you were really good. And I would say, thank you. <laughs> so I would tell the boys, be yourself. Bring your personality, your oddness, your weaknesses and your strengths, and be that person. Don't just be a little sort of iconic representation of a sad little boy who can't get stuff that he likes and is always whining and unhappy, because audiences are going to wish you off the stage. What was it like then, coming back to the show years later, uh, as the father? Oh, it was fantastic. I didn't have to sing all those goddamn songs. <laughs> I got to be one of the people who came on, did my big number, got a huge hand, and then walked off stage and sat in my dressing room. Were, were, you, were you able to let go of the memories of the old production and just and, and embrace this new world? 
Well, I never let go of the memories, but I absolutely embraced it. I really, I must say, over the many years, there were like 40-ish years in there Mm -hmm. where Pippin was never revived on Broadway. It was done everywhere else, but not there. And I questioned that, but nobody could figure out what to do with Pippin that wouldn't be basically copying what Bob had done. And that didn't Mm -hmm. interest, I don't think, directors and choreographers. Either they just didn't want to bother doing that or they were daunted by it. But then along came Diane Paulus, who is fearless. You know, she'll take a scissors to Porgy and Bess, for God's sake. You know, <laughs> and make Porgy stand up and walk. Pardon my French. Yeah. Yeah. But um, so she was fearless and she had that brainstorm of an idea of instead of Commedia dell'arte and Fosse choreography, let's do circus, let's do acrobatics, and let's do magic. And then she also hired Chet to recreate a lot of the Fosse steps and look, but not recreate the Bob Fosse Pippin. So that was brilliant, I thought, and I loved it. Did I miss some of the subtlety and some of the delicacy of the old Pippin? Of course I did. But it was a different Pippin. I mean, if I had been 18, 20, 25, 28, you know, uh, they would have kicked me, not laughed me out of the audition. I never would have been up for that part because I hadn't been in a gym for five years. (laughs) Sure. And I couldn't sing uh, you know, uh, like a operatic tenor almost. All those kids who played Pippin with me and before me in that production were amazing singers mm. and gorgeous hunks of of male bodies. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So it was a little bit weird to me. I did. I always was a little bit disappointed when that Pippin just he's never had sex and he was hoping to get a girl and be you know really (laughs) (laughs) understandable john you know we uh i i if you if you are game and you're open i hope that you'll you'll join us for a part two um because we still have so much left to cover but our time is up for today now i'm just such a a verbose Oh, my poor children. No, 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 no. This is so wonderful. And, you know, obviously you don't have to give us an answer now, but if you're willing oh, to. Sure, I'm a, of course, I'm, I'm enjoying oh, yeah. it very much. Go, so good. good. I will reach out again. John, I can't tell you how much we appreciated this first part, and I'm so happy that you're amenable Please, to a second part. Yeah. Sure, sure. It's great fun. And I thank you guys. It's really oh, sweet. Thank you okay. so much for everything. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And a big thanks to the punchy players, Jeff Marquis, who is bringing back Lucy, Betty, Judy, and Morda shill for us. And a big thanks to our sound editor, Daniel Schwartzberg, and social media manager, Bethany Ann Selecki. 
And don't forget, we want more folks to hear these incredible stories, and that's where you come in. In order for people to find out about us, we need lots of ratings on iTunes. So head on over to iTunes, search for Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends, click on our logo, click on ratings and reviews, then write a review and leave us five stars and make us feel as special as Eliza Doolittle on Eliza Doolittle Day. Or you can leave us just one star and you can make us feel as baddie, baddie, bad as Annie did in that really weird production in Boston where Annie dreamt that she was being adopted, but then she ended up back where in the orphanage, right? Back where she started. Yeah, true story. Rob saw it. Yes, and it was batty. It was bizarre. I was there. I was. Oh, God. So head on over to iTunes and make us feel even more special than we already do. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.